This is lecture number two by Robert Benoit on Deuteronomy. Lecture number two. All right, if you look at the outline for the class lectures, we started with Roman numeral number one, and we did capital A and capital B, which is some general comments on the book of Deuteronomy and the present consensus concerning the origin of the Pentateuch. And now we're in the middle of capital C, the importance of the dating of Deuteronomy for the JEDP theory. Now, just to get into that a bit by way of just a little bit of review, I mentioned to you one of the results of Wellhausen's analysis of the Pentateuch was he isolated a number of law codes, and then he associated those law codes with the different documents so that he had a covenant code from Exodus chapters 20 to 23, which he associated with J.E. And then he had the Deuteronomic Code, which is, of course, associated with the source document D. There was a Holiness Code, H, and a Priestly Code, P. The Priestly Code was associated with the source document, P. The Holiness Code moved in somewhere around the same time as D. But the point is, you got that JDP progression, and in connection with it, the progression of law codes. We discussed that last week. The D code is the one code that has a chronological hook at 621 BC because the assumption was that the law book found in the temple in the times of Josiah was the book of Deuteronomy and written about 621 BC. Its great idea was the centralization of worship. Wellhausen said then this Deuteronomic code requires centralization whereas the covenant code in Exodus allows for multiplicity of altars and worship centers. I think I read to you right at the end of the last hour from Driver's Deuteronomy Commentary. Driver is a follower of Wellhausen, and he says, and I'm quoting here, The different relation in which Deuteronomy thus stands to the three codes of J, E, H, and P may be described generally as follows, end quote. Then he sees the relation in which Deuteronomy stands to the three codes as an expansion of the law J.E. So D is an expansion of J.E. Then he continues, It is in several features parallel to the law of holiness, sort of a parallel to the holiness code. It contains allusions to laws not indeed always the same as, but similar to, the ceremonial institutions and observances codified in the rest of P. So he says it has allusions to stuff that gets codified in P, but wasn't codified until much later than D. Now, that's the general thesis that was developed by Wellhausen and followed by many ever since his time. The theory is based on the assumption that there is an evolutionary development of Israel's religious ideas. That's the assumption behind the theory. It's really the starting point. You assume that Israel's religious institution and practices and ideas developed in an evolutionary pattern, and then you arrange the material in a way that reflects that assumed growth or development. That's really behind the whole structure. We'll come back to this later, particularly when we get to Deuteronomy and centralization of worship. But for the present, the thing I want you to notice is that in the whole JEDP structure, Deuteronomy is the cornerstone, so that's the only fixed point, D, at 621 B.C.
Now, Wellhausen really says that himself, that Deuteronomy is the cornerstone in his volume, The Prolegomena to the History of Ancient Israel, which was the volume that really changed the whole course of Old Testament study. On page 32 and 33, he says, quote, As the Book of the Covenant, which would be that covenant code, and the whole Jovistic writings, that is the J-document general, reflect the first pre-prophetic period in the history of the cultus. So Deuteronomy is the legal expression of the second period of struggle and transition. Quote. So you see, you move from covenant code and the J-document into the second period of Deuteronomy. He says, and I quote again, the historical order is all the more certain because of the literary dependence of Deuteronomy on the J-laws, end quote. Thus D is dependent on J, and narratives can be demonstrated independently and is an admitted fact. He goes on, from this step, it is easy to the belief that the worker's discovery, that is, of the law book in Josiah's time, gave occasion to King Josiah to destroy the local sanctuaries, and that was this very book of Deuteronomy, which originally must have had an independent existence in a shorter form than at present. This alone, at least, of all the books of the Pentateuch, gives so imperious an expression to the restriction of the sacrificial worship to one chosen place. Here only does the demand make itself felt in its aggressive novelty and dominate the whole tendency of the lawmaker. End quote, and that's from Wellhausen. He goes on and he discusses that. But later in his book, after you see, he sets up that progression on page 368, he refers back to that first chapter of Prolegomena to the History of Ancient Israel. I'd say that's a single book that probably caused more change in approach to the study of the Old Testament than any other single book in the last 500 years. Now, getting to that page 368, he says, and I quote again, I always go back to the centralization of the cultus and deduce from it the particular divergences, that is, divergences that the other codes talk about. Centralization of 621 B.C. by Josiah, and that's his focal point, as we've mentioned before. So he says, I always go back to that and deduce from it the particular divergences. My whole position is contained in my first chapter, end quote. His first chapter is where he outlines that progression. He says, There I have placed in a clear light that which is of such importance for Israelite history, namely the part taken by the prophetical party in the great metamorphosis of the worship. Quote. What he means by that great metamorphosis of the worship is this change to a centralized sanctuary. That becomes the keystone to his whole theory. And he says, and I quote him again, I always go back to that, that is to say, to that fact. Now, what I want to do is give you a few comments by a few other Old Testament scholars and show how important that is, not only to Wellhausen's system, but to others who have followed him in this line. In the volume, The Old Testament and Modern Study, which is a collection of essays on various aspects of Old Testament study, edited by H. H. Rowley, I've mentioned this before, which was published in 1951, 
We have G.W. Anderson in his article, The Religion of Israel, in this book. And on page 283 in that article, called Hebrew Religion, Anderson says the following, At no point has the conflict been keener than in connection with the date and nature of Deuteronomy, the keystone of the Wellhausen system of chronology. He speaks of the date of Deuteronomy as the keystone of the Wellhausen system of chronology. He says at no point has the conflict been keener. He goes on, If there is serious uncertainty here, the entire structure of the theory is weakened and may collapse. End quote. If you can shake that 621 date through the book of Deuteronomy, what Anderson is saying is the whole theory is going to collapse. H. H. Rowley, who is the editor of this book, wrote his own little book called The Growth of the Old Testament, published in 1950, and has been reprinted numerous times. On page 29, he states, quote, The Code of Deuteronomy is therefore of vital importance in Pentateuchal criticism, since it is primarily by relation to it that the other documents are dated. Moreover, that code can be more precisely dated with a greater measure of probability than any other, for it is in highest degree probable that the law book on which Josiah's reform was based was the book of Deuteronomy, and that the book first became publicly known at that time. Again, you see, this whole theme of the book being found being Deuteronomy is central because the other documents are dated in relation to it. Otto Eisfeld, who wrote the Old Testament in Introduction, which is a pretty standard treatment of Old Testament introduction, published in 1965, he says on page 171, quote, De Vetta, who in his Dissertatio Critica of 1805, maintains the thesis that Deuteronomy is a work that differs from the earlier books of the Pentateuch and stems from a later author, thus regarding Deuteronomy as having originated not long before the time of its discovery, namely 621 B.C. By this suggestion, the precise time of origin of Deuteronomy was established, and a fixed point was discovered by which the age of the other component parts of the Pentateuch could also be determined. De Vetta's thesis thus provided Pentateuchal criticism with a point of Archimedes to which it could attach itself in order to deliver it from the bonds of church and synagogue tradition. End quote. What's that? What's that tradition? That's the mosaic idea of authorship. And I continue the quote from Eisfeld, and put in its place an alternative dating of the Pentateuch and its parts. It is true that the necessary conclusions from the Veta's judgment were only gradually drawn. He himself held to the view that the source we call P was older than D. End quote. See, the sequence was something that took quite a while to sort out. Wellhausen put it in the order that it is presently in, where P comes later than D. But that Archimedean point is what Eisfeld here terms his thesis that Deuteronomy is the link with the Josian date of 621 B.C. Now, that's rather strong terminology. There are a number of articles on this, and I have these in your bibliography. If you look under Introduction and Criticism, bottom of page 1 of that bibliography, and on over to the following pages, 
You'll notice there's an article on page 2 by G. Dahl, that's D-A-H-L, and the article is The Case for the Currently Accepted Date of Deuteronomy, and that's in the Journal of Biblical Literature, Volume 47, 1928. There's also one by Julius Buer, B-E-W-E-R, and that article is the case for the early date of Deuteronomy, and that too is in the Journal of Biblical Literature, volume 47, 1928. And then, over on the next page, you have the article by Helby Patton, called The Case for the Post-Exilic Origin of Deuteronomy. That too is in JBL, or the Journal of Biblical Literature, Volume 47, 1928. In other words, that volume of JBL for that year, 1928, carried three articles on this question of the date of Deuteronomy. And you see, with Buer, you get the case for the early date. With Dahl, the case for the currently accepted date, which would be the Wellhausen date of 621. And then with Patton, the case for the post-exilic, pushing Deuteronomy much later into the post-exilic period. Now, it sounds like, from the titles of those articles, you're having a case argued for an early date, a 621 date, and a late date. That's somewhat deceptive, because all of these guys accept the Wellhausen date of 621. So when you're talking about the case for the early date, they're giving the case and then critiquing it. Or the case for the late date, they're giving that case and then critiquing it, and then talking about how they accept the date as being the Wellhausen date of 621. Well, those articles are pretty good summaries of the debate that was going on about 60 years ago. The debate is still going on, but you can go back and look at those three articles and get a pretty good introduction to some of the issues that we've been discussing. Why I mention what I just said is because one of those articles, the one by Dahl, the case for the currently accepted date, which is really a defense of the Wellhausen viewpoint, he makes some comments on page 360 of his article, and he says this about this same question. He says, and I'm quoting him, It is good for the student of Scripture to recapitulate occasionally the reasons for the critical faith that is imminent. End quote. Kind of paraphrasing Scripture there. Then he goes on, most emphatically, is this true in the case of Deuteronomy? By unanimous consent, this book is accorded a central pivotal position in the study of Old Testament history, literature, and religion. The ethical reconstruction of the course of Hebrew history, which has been the supreme service and marriage of critical biblical scholarship to mediate, depends for its validity first of all upon the essential correctness of our dating of Deuteronomy. End quote. This critical structure, he says, quote, depends first of all for its validity upon the essential correctness of our dating of Deuteronomy. In particular, the identification of the so-called fifth book of Moses with the book of the law mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 22 is generally regarded as the very, and here's another phrase, keystone of the arch of Old Testament research, end quote. So he says, keystone of the arch of Old Testament research is the dating of Deuteronomy. Icefield called it the Archimedean point, and Dahl calls it the keystone of the arch of Old Testament research. He goes on, to abandon or even seriously question this finding, one by patient and unremitting toil of several generations of scholars, 
would involve a readjustment of the whole critical position which is nothing short of revolutionary, end quote. Now that's coming from someone that's defending the view but admitting the whole thing hangs on the date of Deuteronomy. And in a footnote on that page, he cites other people, George Footmore, for example, in his book, Literature of the Old Testament, who says, quote, Deuteronomy is a fixed point by reference to which the age of other strata in the Pentateuch may be determined at least relatively, end quote. And then we see this person, Graham, in the Journal of Religion of 1927, and he says, quote, it then becomes a sort of meridian of Greenwich, a fixed point in chronological and psychological relationship to which the other literature can be replaced, end quote. So there you get another phrase. Student question, is Dahl quoting these? Vinoy's answer, yes, Dahl is quoting these other guys. So you've got this Archimedean point, keystone of the arch of Old Testament research, and meridian of Greenwich, in reference to the date of Deuteronomy's function, in relation to the rest of the critical structure, the JADP structure. Then he quotes a German, but he quotes him there in German, but if you translate it, it would be something like this that this German fellow says. And I'm quoting the translation, With Deuteronomy stands or falls the entire critical structure, which was carefully constructed during the last decades of the 1900s. So why am I going through all this? Because I want to impress upon you the importance, the significance of the date of Deuteronomy in this whole JEDP theoretical structure. I mean, if dating Deuteronomy in 621 is a mistake, then you've undermined, you see, this whole elaborate critical theory. And these people readily admit that. So it seems to me to be of great significance that the question of the date of Deuteronomy is still not a settled question. There's a lot of debate still going on today, and even among critical scholars. As these articles have pointed out to you, some critical scholars say it ought to be moved earlier. Some say the date ought to be moved later. So even within the academic world of critical scholarship, there's ongoing debate about where Deuteronomy ought to be placed. As far as evangelicals are concerned, it ought to be moved back where it represents itself to be, that is, in the Mosaic era. So there's still a lot of discussion going on, and in the last 50 years or so, the Wellhausen position has been challenged from various directions. These articles are reflections of that direction. As Dahl says in that same article, the second page of it, he says, and I'm quoting here again, critical scholars have been wittingly characterized by someone as a band of cannibals who refresh themselves by devouring one another, end quote. That's not something you often get an idea of in popular treatments of questions like the date of Deuteronomy, where there the 621 date is an established fact. It's not even debatable to them. But you look at the journals, at the technical articles, at the scholars in the field who are writing all this, and you find there's all this debate going back and forth, even among critical scholars. So there have been advocates of the post-exilic dates. We'll see this later, and we'll go through this. There have been advocates of an earlier date than 621, but much later than the date of Moses. In other words, they push it back somewhat earlier than 621, but not all the way back to the time of Moses. So there have been all kinds of viewpoints on this date of Deuteronomy. 
Of course, at the same time, there has always been those who have defended a mosaic date. I mean, all through the course of this discussion, there have been good representations of people who argued for a mosaic date. At the end of this, about all this debate that goes on, Dahl says, and I'm quoting him again, Here, then, are two definite problems that still await solutions. They stand as a challenge to Old Testament criticism. If the experience in the past is any criterion, these problems, too, will in due time find their solution. End quote. The words of Isaiah, chapter 48, verse 22, freely rendered, come to me, and that is, there is no peace, says Jehovah, there is no peace for the wicked. And that's what we read in Isaiah 48, but the debate on Deuteronomy's date goes on. Okay, moving on, that is capital C under Roman numeral 1, the importance of the dating of Deuteronomy to the JADP theory. I don't think I can emphasize too much how significant that is. Now, let's go on to Roman numeral number 2, the authorship and date of Deuteronomy, a survey of critical approaches. What I've done here is simply take, first, the theory of the Wellhausen School, which I've already alluded to, and, in capital B, we have challenges to the classic Wellhausen position from various directions. And number one under that is the post-exilic direction, and two is a date earlier than 621, but during the monarchical period. Three in the outline is pre-monarchical dating, but non-mosaic, just moving back a little bit earlier than J, and four is advocates of the mosaic date. So we just sort of get a survey, then, of these various approaches to the date of Deuteronomy. Capital A, the theory of the Wellhausen School. I've already summarized the basic features of it and the importance of Deuteronomy being dated to 621 B.C. for the JEDP edifice in general. But let me just fill in a few more details, perhaps. As I mentioned earlier, Wellhausen considered Deuteronomy to be the law book referred to in 2 Kings chapter 22 and following, which is where we have the story of the time of King Josiah in that 22nd chapter of 2 Kings. So that is the law book found in 2 Kings chapter 22. And then, in addition, he says the book was written in the time of Josiah. At the time that Wellhausen advanced his theory, the usual view was that the law book found in the temple was the entire Pentateuch, not just the book of Deuteronomy. So at that time, when Wellhausen advanced his views, the idea was that the entire Pentateuch was found in Josiah's time. But I don't think that saying it was only Deuteronomy is necessarily something that needs to be argued. It may have been. It's harder to say whether it was the entire Pentateuch or just Deuteronomy. The idea that it was just Deuteronomy was not a new idea. Some of the church fathers held that the book that was found in Josiah's time was the book of Deuteronomy, and among the early church fathers were Athanasius, Jerome, and Chrysostom. They held that it was Deuteronomy, but they didn't deny Mosaic authorship. That'd be the point of difference between the church fathers and Wellhausen. As I mentioned before, Wellhausen's view was that it was Deuteronomy, but that it was also written in the time of Josiah, not just found. He derived that from Willem H. M. de Vetta, 
De Vetta had developed the idea that Deuteronomy was written at about the time of Josiah, and his basic arguments for that were twofold. The first one was that he said the historical books, with the exception of texts that are clearly from a later date, that there is no trace of Deuteronomy before the time of Josiah in the historical books. In other words, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, up to the time of Josiah, he says there is no trace of any influence of Deuteronomy prior to the time of Josiah. But then, you see, he qualifies that by saying, quote, except from the texts that are clearly from a later date, end quote. In other words, you see what he's saying is, you don't find Deuteronomic influence in the historical books up to the time of Josiah, but if you do find something that looks like Deuteronomy, well, you know, that must be later, and it was inserted back into the text subsequent to the writing of Deuteronomy. He goes on to say, quote, in the historical books, with the exception of texts that are clearly from a later date, end quote. Why? Why are they clearly from a later date? Because they reflect Deuteronomy. So he asserts there is no trace of Deuteronomy before the time of Josiah, and that's his first argument. His second argument, he says, quote, The content of 2 Kings chapter 22 confirms that Deuteronomy is in view. End quote. What he means by that is the nature of Josiah's reform reflects emphases from the book of Deuteronomy. So he says the content of 2 Kings chapter 22 confirms that Deuteronomy is in view. Now, those were the two main arguments. Devetta speculates that perhaps Hilkiah or Huldah or Shaphan were involved in the authorship of the book. Now, who were Hilkiah, Huldah, and Shaphan? Student answer, a prophet. Vinoy says, Hilkiah was a priest. Who was Huldah? Student, probably a prophet. Vinoy, she was a prophetess to whom the book was taken after it was found. Shaphan was the one who read it to the king. He was a scribe in the service of Josiah. So there are three individuals, and their names are linked with the finding of the book in the time of Josiah. And so Devetta speculates that Hilkiah the priest, or Hulda the prophetess, and Shaphan the scribe were involved in the authorship of the book. So you can't be sure of that, but that's the suggestion, so that inseparably related to this is the finding of the book in 621, and that it was written about that time, at the time of its finding, by these three authors. Hence, it was a deliberate deception, or a pious fraud. You know, it wasn't really found, it was just represented as having been found, represented as being mosaic, in order to give it authenticity and authority. So we get this pious fraud idea, where the people are deceived into thinking, whoa, wow, here's a book that God gave to Moses, and we just happened to find it, Woo! Now, that's a rather radical view, to think that the book with the kind of content the book of Deuteronomy has could be something written by people who are deceitful enough to fraudulently present it as something that is authentic, when indeed it wasn't. But some people felt there was a certain problem with that. So there's a more moderate view, you might say, advanced by some who otherwise agreed with the Wellhausen de Vetta position. And they said that maybe Deuteronomy was written earlier than the time of Josiah, and move it back, say, to the time of Hezekiah or Manasseh, which wouldn't be moving it back very long. But they say it was written maybe in the time of Hezekiah or Manasseh, and then really lost during the terrible period of apostasy during the time of Manasseh. Then it really could have been found in Josiah's time. 
But in all of those views, it's assumed Deuteronomy was first publicly proclaimed as law under Josiah and not earlier. Now, one other comment about this view, which is interesting, I think. Behind this consensus was the presupposition that the narrative of 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23 are historical reliable. Because, you see, the argument is the account of 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23 and the description there of Josiah's Reformation, and that is of such a nature that it makes us conclude that Deuteronomy must have been the impetus for that Reformation. Well, that assumes, then, that this account is reliable. If you question the historical reliability of 2 Kings chapters 22 and 23, then you lose the linkage for definite historical date for the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the interesting irony is this. Deuteronomy is a pious fraud, but Kings must be historically reliable. Why? Student question. As far as reliability, if this was a deliberate deception, how could it then be reliable? I'm not sure exactly what you mean by reliable. If you had said this was a deliberate deception, then it would really be reliable, wouldn't it? Lenoy. Well, what I mean, and what I'm really talking about from some of this debate, is the description of the character of the Reformation under Josiah, the way it really happened. If you don't assume that deception is reliable, then you don't have a basis for saying Deuteronomy was found. So, in that sense, is what I'm saying. Let's go on. Dow says on page 376, in that same article I read from you before, he says this, quote, the historicity of these chapters is seriously challenged by a number of scholars, end quote. And there he's speaking of Second Kings chapters 22 and 23. And he says the historicity is seriously challenged by a number of scholars. Upon the answer to that question, their historical value depends much, if not all. Whatever doubts may be entertained upon the subject, it simply will not do to isolate the question of the historicity of Second Kings 22 and following as though their testimony were alone and unsupported. We have already seen abundant independent evidence exists for placing Deuteronomy in this particular niche of literary and religious development. That was dull. Later he says, and I'm quoting here again, but as a matter of fact, our faith in the essential trustworthiness of the record is abundantly justified by literary criticism. The editor of King seems to have used here an older written source, clearly distinguishable in style and thought from his own writing. This was probably included in a pre-exilic history of the kings and may well have been written by a contemporary of Josiah, almost certainly in any case, before the catastrophe of 586 B.C. That's the fall of the temple. The fact that the book of Kings, in its final form, is of later date does not necessarily stamp the account in these chapters as an invention, nor does the evident working over of Hulda material overbear the evident soberness of the main story. There is such a thing as over-refined skepticism. End quote. Now, the interesting thing is, here is the critical scholar trying to defend the historicity of Second King chapters 22 and 23 against the very same kind of people who are questioning the historicity of Second Kings chapters 22 and 23, and he says there is such a thing as over-refined skepticism. And he goes on to discuss this for a couple more pages. But he says, finally, quote, 
In spite of all this, it would nevertheless seem we must presuppose a historical basis for some, at least, of the tradition. Surely they're not all manufactured out of whole cloth. The reform of King Josiah seems better attested than most. The balance of probability seems to be decidedly in favor of a general historicity of Second Kings chapter 22, end quote. It's really interesting to find a guy like this trying to argue for historicity in 2 Kings 22 and 23 in order to support the theory, then generally the method is quite the reverse. But you see why that relates to the case. And some of those that want to move Deuteronomy to a later date challenge the historicity of 2 Kings 22 and 23. So that's the basic Wellhausen position. I think I've said enough about the general theory. Dahl argues that abundant independent evidence exists for placing Deuteronomy in this context of Israelite literary religious development. He tries to convince us that his conclusions are based on historical evidence. But I don't think that's it. I think it's simply this long-standing, now for a century, view that Israel's religion developed in an evolutionary pattern like religions are assumed elsewhere to have developed, and that when you look at the Pentateuch and you find these magnificent, sophisticated God concepts, such as Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, that couldn't possibly have existed in the early date of Israel. Such an elevated God concept that you find there must be late. So Genesis 1, which is part of P, is written in the exile according to them. And that's that evolutionary scheme of things that is at the heart of this discussion, I think. They're looking at it from a history of religion standpoint, trying to reconstruct by the historical critical method a history of Israel's religious development. That historical critical method that they're committed to is a method that from the outset would exclude divine interventions and miraculous things of that sort. In other words, the historical critical methods have to look at and be able to explain via natural cause and effect everything that happens. No miracles, no interventions by a deity. You've got to work with the analogy of history. That means that when we read events that are not part of our own experience, those things simply couldn't happen. The analogy of history is sort of a control on whether or not you can accept divine interventions and miraculous things. Here's the way that methodology is set up. Anywhere you find divine interventions or the miraculous, the assumption is we know those things don't happen. So if you find them in the text, we know that that's not true and it's likely mythological. So you see, this methodology is based on that kind of naturalistic methodology and imposes it on the material that is by its very nature alien to this methodology. The Bible is alien to this methodology because it talks about a deity and divine interventions and the miraculous. But this naturalistic methodology is supposed to be scientific. Well, I think we better take a little break here, and then we'll go on to the challenges to the Wellhausen position from various directions. We'll look at that the second hour. That's lecture number two on Deuteronomy by Robert Vinoy of Biblical Theological Seminary. 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 Seminary.